Locked On Dolphins, hosted by Travis Wingfield. Your daily podcast on the Miami Dolphins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I'm in town to play the Dolphins, you dumbass. What is up, Dolphins, and welcome into the Tuesday, December the 24th edition of the Locked On Dolphins podcast. I am your host, Travis Winkfield, and as always, I am here to bring you your daily dose of Miami Dolphins football. And on today's show, we go inside the numbers with the Dolphins and Bengals aftermath, who blew up the box score, and how impressive was Ryan Fitzpatrick's record-setting day on Sunday, Plus, we'll play some audio from the locker room, set the slate for Miami's 2020 schedule, and theorize a non-Tua Tungavailoa option for the draft and the offseason. All of that and more, but first, before any of it, I kindly invite each and every one of you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast where Locked On Dolphins is a top 200 podcast in the sports category, or on Spotify, where we breach the top 100 in the sports category. Stitcher, tuned in, wherever you get your podcasts from, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review. Give me a follow on Twitter. It's at WingfieldNFL. Voted the number one follow on Dolphins Twitter by Dolphins Twitter. Check out the show at Locked On Fins. We'll follow you back. And of course, LockedOnDolphins.com. We have the aftermath piece up there live right now, as well as the recap from Sunday and some new work from Kevin Dern. All of that and more lockedondolphins.com. Let's go ahead and jump right in. That's another Miami Dolphins. And we're going to start this podcast today with some audio from the locker room. Kevin and I had a chance to catch up with Zach Sealer, the new Dolphins defensive lineman who had a dominant game on Sunday. We talked to Jesse Davis and his Seattle Mariners hat, and we talked to Mike Gasicki after the game, as well as Brian Flores and his press post-game press conference, I should say. Let's go ahead and jump into the Zach Sealer audio. And the first question I posed to Zach was asking him, how has he had such an immediate impact on a team that he joined just two weeks ago? Just learning. Um, the coaches have been very helpful. Uh, the players, Jinx, have been helping me just teach me the new techniques and new plays, just getting some confidence, and then uh, going out there and just playing ball. And it's the same thing I've done over how many years. I just got to keep continuing to grow on my game and improving. It's a pretty deep scheme, a lot of different positions and different techniques and a lot of two-gapping. Is that something you're familiar with? We did a little bit of that at Baltimore. I was in that four technique. Um, so I am. This different way we play things, and I just got to learn that and just keep improving. Like I said, Coach Hobbs, Jinx, Graham, all those guys have just been great. Um, so I just got to keep improving and just learning from them. So you hear him reference both Marion Hobby and Patrick Graham, which makes sense because they are his coaches, both positionally and the defensive coordinator. But you also heard him mention John Jenkins twice in both of those questions as a guy who has kind of taken him under his wing and taught him some of the new techniques, some of the new schemes. And you mentioned the four technique playing that big defensive end role. The Dolphins basically used four defensive tackles as their entire defensive line on Sunday. And yeah, Trent Harris and Vince Beagle come down and condense as a six technique off that edge in the four-man fronts on the defensive line, but there's a lot of different things they use to game plan in this game, and Zach Sealer looks like a fit in that spot. And to go back to John Jenkins and kind of what he means to this team, I'm of the belief that John Jenkins, in a limited role, has proven his worth to this team as a rotational interior defensive lineman, but you get the, the sense that he is one of those leaders and guys that really kind of commands the defensive lineman room, and that comes through from Zach Sealer's comments there. So John Jenkins, a big-time leader, a selfless player, and has had a big impact on already on Zach Sealer. 
And we'll transition now over to the audio from Mike Gasicki. And the question comes in from Safed Dean off the top, kind of talking about how it felt to win that game or some of the pressure they felt in the overtime period. And Gasicki wanted to set the record straight on what the story of this game should be. Not that the Dolphins almost blew a lead, but rather that they fought through some adversity. The whole fourth quarter, I mean, we're not really, we're not really out there. You know, their their offense is out there for the majority of it. So you kind of got to, you know, flip that switch again and get going. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe it took all 10 minutes, but we were able to get the win and uh, go out there and make some plays. And I think that's, uh, that's you know, people are going to talk about, oh, man, the Dolphins almost let one slip. But, hey, how about, you know, the Dolphins fought through a lot of adversity and got a win. So that's huge. It's been a pretty challenging season for you guys for the most part. But you've stayed together and fought hard. And this game was a good example of kind of your guys' metal in yeah. these tough situations. Do you yeah. think that's something that's kind of built throughout the season and that message from Coach Flores and yeah. the way the guys respond? Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, We've been able to grow and, you know, get better from the experiences earlier this year. And uh, I think that that kind of showed today, you know, whether whether we're up, whether you know they come back and tie it, you know, we're going in overtime. We thought we were going to get the win easy. I mean, it's it's a it's a whirlwind out there and uh, we were able to fight through all the good and the bad. And now we're sitting here and uh, got another win at home. And, you know, our fans were going nuts. It's, 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 a, it's a fun experience. You know, regardless of everything that's happened this year, you got to remember that this is a game and we're, we got to go out there, have fun and uh, be able to grab a win, and I think that that's the most important part. You love hearing that Mike Isicki talks about the fun aspect of it and that it is still a game, and it kind of reminds me of a comment I made on Twitter about the human element of this game, seeing Ryan Fitzpatrick with his family and his sons and bringing his two oldest sons into the locker room and how happy and excited they all were to share in this win. These guys are human beings, and to see some of the stuff people say on Twitter about them and then to be in front of those guys in the locker room, it's just really a pleasure and a treat to be in front of those guys, and they have the right mentality and the right mindset, and that obviously permeates from the top. And I think that Gasicki is a great example of the growth we have established on this roster and in this team within this program because last year, I've mentioned this at least a thousand times, that Gasicki had to get better at his functional strength and his contact balance, fighting through reroutes and a catch point, being more physical. I think he's done that on the field. And just to go back to talking to Mike last year in the locker room compared to that little segment, he has grown so much in his confidence and the way he kind of the way he presents himself and his demeanor. And I think that that is the most tangible thing you've seen with this team, the growth from the young guys, and it's going to only continue going forward. Let's get some audio now from Jesse Davis. And I mentioned on yesterday's podcast that Davis was wearing a Mariners hat. And I always try to find a personal in with the guys to kind of break the ice and build that initial rapport. So I started off talking about Eastern Washington and the fact that he grew up in Asotan, Washington, a town a few hundred miles away from where I live. Went to Idaho at college, obviously. But let's go ahead and talk now about his position at right tackle and the adjustment he's had to make going from guard to tackle this season. Company, yeah. yeah. So, uh, right tackle this year, man, a bit of an adjustment for you or something you're kind of familiar with? Or? Uh, right, you know, at first, yeah. yeah. Like, you know, as the season's progressed, uh, you've gotten more comfortable. Uh, I feel like I'm playing on a decent level. Uh, have, have you had any like significant teaching moments you can kind of look back to and say that's where I really kind of turned a corner or maybe kind of got it? Yeah, I think um, I think Philly week yeah. is when you know, we all went up against you know some pretty good edge rushers and. Kind of just instilled a little more confidence in myself. And you know, just trusted my progression, my slide progression, my with my feet. And, um, after that game, I feel like, you know, even Julian and the other tackle as well, we both kind of turned the corner. Sure. You guys, seems like a lot of times they tend to maybe slide protection away from you because you are kind of the experienced guy when you're on the stage. Is that something that you kind of take pride in and being the guy that is the isolation guy on the right yeah, side? Yeah, I mean, if that's the case, you know, 
They've never told me that, but um, yeah, you know, I, I like that. You know, I like the, I like that the challenge of being matched up one on one, even though it's if it's a good guy or not. Any uh, guys that you've modeled your game after, as far as being no, tackled? You know, I try to try to take little bits here and there, like what works. You know, like you watch a guy going against our opponent. He's like a divisional guy. Like they play each other twice a year. And like, oh, just, you know, I'll use something that he's been doing to like kind of because he knows that guy really well. But um, you know, Lane Johnson, I, I like how he kicks out quick. So I, I took that kind of look from him. But uh, now I'm just like, you know, whatever works for me works for me. Do you kind of do you have to kind of alter your like your approach from an opponent standpoint? Because like last week, Marcus Golden, I thought you had a great game against him. Mm -hmm. Followed really well today. Maybe Carlos Dunlap gives you a bit more of a speed rusher, a more of a first yeah. get off. Is that adjustment you know, for you? I was expecting him to go speed all game yeah. and then spin move the long arm. He was taking inside moves, so I was, I was beating him out there too fast and I was giving up my inside. But, um, you know, watching him and I saw he always started something off on shake, so he didn't really show that today. But, um, okay, one more for you. Played a lot of right guards this year. You know, Shaq Calhoun, Evan Brown, yeah. Evan Bain. All these guys that have been playing with you. Is, it, is that a challenge to kind of play with a new right guard all, all the time? Um, yeah, but it's not an excuse. Yeah. I mean, you know, these guys. Um, got a couple rookies or new guys, but um, Evans played the position for a while. So I mean, it's just more so of just getting our timing down together, but um, and communicating on the same level. Like we're on the go out there and make every call and just be hey, we're going to this call. He knows exactly what we're going to yep. do. So that's the one thing. Well, I appreciate it, man. Maybe this, maybe this is the year. Well, I certainly lied about that. It's definitely not the Mariners' year this year, but Jesse and I can both hope. I liked the comment he made about his preparation going back and looking at a divisional opponent who has gone up against that pass rusher because they have more familiarity with that guy. And you can kind of tell that Jesse takes his preparation very, very seriously. And that has to be a main sticking point for the reason they gave him that contract extension this offseason. You heard him talk about Lane Johnson answering Kevin's question as far as who he might model his game after. He's just a very astute guy. And I I think that's something this Dolphins staff, this Dolphins brass is going to really value going forward as far as who they want to bring into this building and who they want to have around the rest of these young guys in the locker room. All right, we're going to come back on the other side, get to the aftermath from the post game, and hear some sound from Coach Flores. All of that and more here next on the Locked On Dolphins podcast at Wingfield NFL at Locked On Fins. By now, you've probably heard me talk about our post-game press conference with Brian Flores and just how much that guy emanates confidence and emanates leadership and teaching and all the fun stuff we talked about all off-season long. I had a question for Brian Flores regarding his ability to get guys playing up to speed within the scheme in this complex, positionless, versatile defense they like to operate out of and how even more impressive it is when they get production from guys who just got here last week or two weeks ago. We talked about it with Zach Sealer, but when, of course, when I asked Brian Flores that question in the press conference, I'm not going to play the audio because it's kind of hard to hear, but when I ask him that question, he deflects, and that's what leaders do. They deflect credit, they accept blame, and they are the genuine article, and that's what Brian Flores is. He says, quote, I'm here to serve these guys, to make them better players, better people, 
end quote. And it's a learning, nurturing atmosphere that's steeped in tough love. We heard about Brian Flores in New England. You go to every single person on that defensive side of the football. And when he was honored for that award, that I forget what it was, but he was honored for some award in the Boston area for his work in the community and what he is as a leader. And Devin McCourty and all these Patriots defensive captains showed up at the event to present Brian Flores. And it just tells you how players feel about this guy and how genuine it really is. We're not talking about a player's coach like Adam Gase who can sit there and have a beer and bullshit with the players and be friends on the surface with them. It's more of an actual guiding father type of figure, but also there to be there for them. And he loves them as people. He loves their family. He wants them to be better men, as he says. And that just resonates throughout the locker room. You can totally tell. And that's how he's been able to get the results out of this roster, which let's face it, it's the level of the Toronto Argonauts, the Calgary Stampede. This is a CFL level roster he's throwing out there every single week, and he's finding ways to get wins. And I went back over the last two seasons to see how Adam Gase finished seasons And I kind of cherry-picked this stat to better my argument here, but I went back and used the end of the last two seasons, and Adam Gase finished each of the last two years at 5-15 over the last 10 games in both of those seasons. Brian Flores this year, with a roster who just used its 81st and 82nd player to take a snap on Sunday, have put together a 3-5 stretch in the last eight games, and of course, they are just one two-point conversion away from being 500 in that period, and it's been all about learning how to execute your job learning what it takes to be a professional and learning how to have the back of the man next to you and even more so learning how to win and I just think that that message has really really seeped in to this Dolphins locker room it's a testament to the growth of this team and once you look at the overall statistics of this team there really should be no reason for this team to have any wins because they are so far down buried in all these statistical categories which we'll talk about now here and Kyle Krabs of the Dolphins Wire and of the Draft Network mentioned that Ryan Fitzpatrick has 2,774 passing yards since he was reinserted back into the lineup after the Washington game, and that tracks to a 4,500-yard season on a pro-rated 16-game sample size. He also, in that stretch, has 18 touchdowns compared to 9 picks. The 9 picks is too much, but that would be 36 touchdown passes over a 16-game season. He is really playing well right now. And as a result of those stats from Fitzpatrick, the Dolphins' passing offense ranks 15th in the NFL. They were never higher than 18th with Adam Gase in 2017 with Jay Cutler at the helm. They are 27th in total offense, still dead last in rushing offense, and have the 26th ranked scoring offense in the National Football League. They score touchdowns on 25 of 44 red zone trips. That's good for 56.8 conversion rate. That's 18th in the NFL. And their 33.8% third down rate ranks 27th in the NFL. Now the Dolphins rush defense had its best game of the season on Sunday, but the impact wasn't really that impactful for the Dolphins season statistics. They are now four yards worse than Arizona at the bottom of the league in total defense, ranking 32nd. The pass defense is ranked 28th. The Dolphins run defense is ranked 27th, and they are still dead last in scoring defense as the only team to allow more than 30 points at 31.3 points per game. Snap counts. Let's go back to the offensive side of the football, and there was a lot of reps to 
to get to in this game. Ryan Fitzpatrick, the quarterback, played all 90 reps, and so did the entirety of the offensive line. Julian Davenport, Michael Dieter, Daniel Kilgore, Shaq Calhoun, and Jesse Davis, all of them played 90 snaps. And Adam Pankey, actually, now that I think about it, is the 83rd player to play a snap on this team. Adam Pankey had four reps in heavy personnel. In the backfield, Patrick Laird had 49 snaps. Miles Gaskin had 34, but he was out repping Laird until he got hurt. So I think he might be RB1 on the depth chart, even though he's not going to play next week because of the ankle injury. Delance Turner had five reps. Christian Wilkins had one at fullback. The receivers, Devontae Parker had 75. Albert Wilson, 66. Isaiah Ford, 38. Alan Hearns, 32. And Mac Hollins got out there for five snaps. At tight end, Mike Gesicki played 58 reps. Durham Smythe, and Clive Walford both had 28 snaps each. Fitzpatrick's 245 passing yards in the first half was the second most in franchise history in any given half. It was also the first time a Dolphins quarterback has thrown for four touchdown passes in a game since Ryan Tannehill did it in 2015 against the Houston Texans, and he carved up the Bengals' defense when kept clean. We talked about how Cincinnati might be able to get a lot of pressure on Fitzpatrick with just four-man rushes, but when they did that, he passed for 349 yards at 9.2 yards per attempt and he also had two touchdown passes with a passer rating of 112.7 against just a four-man rush. Jesse Davis was again the Dolphins best offensive lineman. He allowed the fewest pressures with three and only one of those was a hit on the quarterback. Zero sacks. Julian Davenport, you heard Jesse Davis mention he kind of came along since the Eagles game. He had his best game of the season, led Miami in run blocking as far as the grades go and none of his four pressures were allowed were sacks. All of Shaq Calhoun's pressures were hurries, so that's improvement. And he also had the second best run blocking grade for himself this season. Michael Dieter had a rough day from a grading standpoint. He allowed four pressures and two of those were hits, zero sacks. Durham Smythe and Clive Walford both had clean sheets and pass protection and had adequate run blocking days. Devontae Parker was force fed in this game, only caught five of his 13 targets, but he made those count with an average of 22.2 yards per catch and a more than respectable 8.54 yards per target. Mike Gesicki was pretty similar, caught six of 11 targets, but did so at a 13.7 yards per catch and a very solid 7.45 yards per target, and each of his six catches came against a different Bengals defender. Albert Wilson was the most efficient. He caught all seven of his targets for 79 yards, and Miles Gaskin, I talked about it already, continues to show the progress as a potential fit next year for Miami. I thought his vision and patience and ability to drop his pads and run behind his pads were very impressive, especially on that touchdown run, his first of his career. He also had a career-high 56 yards rushing and did so while averaging 2.75 yards after contact that led the team and Patrick Laird has not been over two yards after contact in the last three weeks on the defensive side of the football the snap counts the Dolphins played defensive tackles pretty much exclusively on the front Christian Wilkins 55 snaps Zach Sealer 48 Devon Godshaw 44 John Jenkins 38 at linebacker Jerome Baker get that man a Gatorade and a cold bath he had 87 reps out of the 90 Andrew Van Ginkle played 65 filling in for Vince Beagle late in the game Trent Harris played 60. He was more of that edge linebacker conversion type of position like Vince Beagle. Sam McGuavin had 48 reps. Vince Beagle had the 41. Calvin Munson comes here this week, plays 36 reps on Sunday, started the game too. Jamal Davis played nine reps. Nick Needham and Eric Rowe both played all 90 reps each. Adrian Colbert had 84. Tay Hayes just got here this week, 67 snaps for him. Montre Hardage plays 46. Jamal Wills, who left the game with a shoulder injury, played 33. Nate 
Brooks had 34, Stephen Parker played 14, and Lyndon Stevens had seven reps on Sunday. Zach Sealer, we talked about him all day yesterday on the podcast and at the Dolphin Stadium. He registered three pressures, one sack, and two hurries, made a combined seven tackles, and five of those tackles were for run stops within two yards of the line of scrimmage or for TFLs. He also batted down two passes at the line of scrimmage. Sam McGuavin earned PFF's highest grade for all Dolphins defenders. He applied pressure four times. All of those were just hurries, though, but his assignment, I thought, was the most intriguing. Of his 48 reps in the game, 40 were coming from a pass rushing capacity. Calvin Munson had the third highest grade with five tackles and two run stops. He played 21 run defense downs, 15 in coverage, and did not blitz. So essentially the Raekwon McMillan role in this defense. Devon Godshaw, steady as he goes. Two more pressures, five tackles, and two run stops. And Christian Wilkins filled up the box score. He had four pressures. One of those was a sack. Three of them were hurries. Also made three run stops. He also, of course, caught that pass for a touchdown as the fullback in that heavy goal line personnel. Jerome Baker made 11 tackles in this game. Four of those for run stops. He also had two quarterback pressures, including a sack. He has been balling out lately, even though he might be miscast in this defense. Andrew Van Ginkle had two pressures, a hit and a hurry, and both of his tackles were good for run stops in the game and Trent Harris had three pressures including a sack fumble four tackles and three run stops we're going to come back on the other side the Dolphins 2020 opponents have been set for next season and we're going to talk about a potential option that does not include Tua Tungavailoa in this draft all of that next here on the Locked On Dolphins podcast at Wingfield NFL at Locked On Fins The Dolphins 2020 opponents, the season that really matters for us, have been set at this stage. Of course, the offseason is still ahead and the Senior Bowl starts the last weekend in January. That in earnest is when the Dolphins' real season and the real process here for Brian Flores and this new regime begins. But the Dolphins' home opponents for 2020 are as follows. Of course, they'll play the Patriots, Jets, and Bills all at home. Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs will travel to Miami. So will the Los Angeles Chargers as part of the AFC West. West alignment. The Bengals finishing last in the division will come to Miami again and the Seahawks and Rams will both travel to Miami to face Brian Flores and the rematch of Flores' defense against Jared Goff, Sean McVay and that Rams offense. The road games are a little bit easier here. The Patriots, Jets and Bills of course and then the other two teams from the AFC West the Raiders and the Broncos. So trips to Vegas and Denver, two of the best cities in the NFL in my opinion. And the other equivalent last place finisher in the AFC South, the Jacksonville Jaguars, that will be a road game as the Dolphins go up north in Florida. And the two NFC West teams, the Cardinals and 49ers, will both provide road games for the Dolphins as they face Kyle Shanahan, Jimmy Garoppolo, and Kyler Murray and the Arizona Cardinals. But what could that 2020 Dolphins team look like? I talked about it on Twitter on Sunday. The Dolphins are probably going to wind up picking fifth in this year's draft unless somebody ahead of them wins a game. That's going to include a win for Washington or the Giants over Philly and Dallas or Detroit finding a win against the Minnesota Vikings. We'll see if that actually happens. I highly doubt it. So Miami likely is to pick fifth. And Sunday was a point of contention for plenty of upset Dolphins fans regarding the loss of draft position. And that point is entirely valid. But the point here for the Tua Tungavailoa argument is that I don't think any of those teams ahead of Miami will be in a position to draft Tua because one and two is Joe Burrow and Chase Young to Washington 
Washington and Cincinnati, respectively. Then you have the Giants with Daniel Jones. They're not going to take a quarterback. And in Detroit, we had to get a report that both Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn, a public statement that they were safe going into next season, which means they are on the hot seat next year. So can they afford, without any job security, to take a player in the top five who will not play in 2020? I tend to doubt that's the case. And we've already established this year that Brian Flores and his staff can plug new players into the system and find results immediately. So can they take a backseat for 2020 with that first pick and use it on Tua? If they don't, this is the option I think you can take because the offense has had success despite the fact that really they are pretty beaten down, although they are a lot healthier than the defensive side of the ball. And that's where I think this team could use the biggest shot in the arm right now and use the biggest upgrade to really see this defense take on the mold and the vision of what Brian Flores wants this defense to be. So they could take Tua, but if someone trades up over Miami and goes up and gets Tua, this could be an option. You stay put at the fifth pick in the draft and you take Isaiah Simmons and you build this defense around that dude who can rush the edge. He can drop in the hook and the curl zones and play the pass. His length really provides problems for the passing game that way. He can man up on a tight end or a running back or even a slot receiver and run his 4-4 40-yard dash down the middle of the field. We've seen him do that for Clemson. This guy can change the way your defense works, especially in a defense that's based on a positionless mentality of guys that can do multiple things. Nobody can do more than Isaiah Simmons. And then later in the first round, that's when you get your quarterback. Maybe you come back then and take Jordan Love and let him sit for a year, maybe two, maybe even three, if Ryan Fitzpatrick continues on this trajectory. Because again, he's been a top 10 quarterback since the bye week, and he's done that behind the 32nd ranked offensive line, according to Pro Football Focus. They have no running game, and he's done it with a revolving door at the integral slot position within the scheme that's so important to what this offense wants to be. And he's done it without the services of his breakthrough rookie receiver. So maybe you build the offense for a year or two around Ryan Fitzpatrick with Jordan Love in tow, who has the Patrick Mahomes capability and talent. He has to put it all together. He has to grow and develop. But who do I trust more than this coaching staff and Chad O'Shea and Josh uh, Jerry Shaplinski to get that done for the quarterback? So if you want to go that route, you take Isaiah Simmons, you take Jordan Love, and then with a the third pick in the first round, maybe you get the best offensive lineman off the board, whether that's Creed Humphrey, whether that's Josh Jones, Austin Jackson, whoever it might be late in that first round, you could find the offensive lineman to start for you ahead of Ryan Fitzpatrick, build this thing around him, get the defense and use a lot of that free agency money on defense to repair the side of the ball that has been so beaten down. You're going to get Bobby McCain and Rashad Jones and Xavier Howard, Raekwon McMillan, all these guys back off injured reserve. You could plant a Byron Jones out there. You could go after a Yannick Ngakwe, whatever the case may be. You can add splashes to this defense, use the pick on Isaiah Simmons and get that side of the football right, repair your offense where you have to on the offensive line, remake the running game, go into 2020 with Ryan Fitzpatrick, maybe you make a playoff push, and then in 2021, maybe you turn the reins over to Jordan Love, and maybe, just maybe, you're a Super Bowl contender as early as 2021 or 2022. All right, guys, that's going to be my time for today's podcast. Go check out the Aftermath article up on LockedOnDolphins.com. We have some written work from Kevin Dern. Plenty of work coming out this week for you as well, but I'm going to go ahead and enjoy Miami. We're heading to the Heat game tonight, my wife and I. That should be a good time. If you guys are in the area, come say what's up. But as for today's podcast, that'll be my time. You all, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. Check out the other Locked On Sports family of podcasts for all the local and national coverage of your 
your favorite teams. Follow me on Twitter at WingfieldNFL. Follow the show at LockedOnFins. And check out LockedOnDolphins.com for all your daily written content for your Dolphins needs. You guys have a great rest of your night. We'll talk to you again tomorrow for another edition. Check that. We're going to be off on Wednesday. We'll talk to you on Thursday for a preview edition for the final game of 2019 on the Locked On Dolphins podcast, your daily dose for Miami Dolphins football. Fins up. 